You're listening to Lame Radio, the hottest show this side of Diesel. Welcome to this episode 15 of Lave Radio, the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host for the show, Fozza Forrester, and joining me in the orange beacon of broadcasting are, fresh from rescuing someone from the guillotine, the Scarlet Pimpernel himself, Christopher Jarvis. Hello? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, do you know what? Right up until the point where you said my name, I had no idea who that intro was going to. Why why have I done this? Awesome intro. Best intro ever. I have no idea what it means. Don't care. Best (laughs) intro ever. (laughs) I take it all back. I, you know, every week I, every week I downplay the intros like a moody bastard. This week, awesome intro. (laughs) It's only taken three months. Oh, no more. Four months, five months, however long we've been on air. Awesome introduction. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Joining Chris is Lay Radio's own Lord Lucan, John Stabler Good evening And finally completing the Holy Trinity We have the ever-impressive Stallion Shergar In the form of Alan Stroud I, I, What are you on? <laughs> what are you on? <laughs> Where did these come from tonight? <laughs> did you go to your mum And basically get her to write them? Oh, just a little bit of an explanation as to why. Oh, to be honest, I take the compliment, Alan. He's compared you to a racing horse. <laughs> just to explain the introductions ever so slightly, uh, you guys have been absolutely invisible. You guys have vanished off the face of the planet for the last two weeks. So, obviously, the first question I'm going to ask all of you is where the heck have you been? Chris, we'll start with you. Well, good news is I've been very busy um, with Escape Velocity. I had some deadlines for a recording day, which I didn't make, so I pushed the recording day back. But the good news is, as of today, principal recording for Series 2 of Escape Velocity um, is done, by all accounts. There are one or two parts that still need allocating here and there, and there's one particular actor that I need to track down for a recording. But actually, mostly, you know, it's all, it's all in the can and ready for editing. Wow. So that's the entirety of season two of Escape Velocity, done and dusted. I mean, there's still an awful lot (laughs) still to be done to it. Um, But in terms of the raw recording with the actors, we're looking at five 30-minute episodes. I mean, I'm sure sure at some point someone will say, why is this one only five episodes and the last one was six? But actually, in total, this is two and a half hours, where the previous series was, was just under two hours in total. So... It's a lot. Wow. Great stuff. And Alan, yet again, somebody else that's been absent from Skype and the rest of the world by the sounds of it. What have you been up to? I don't feel like I've been particularly absent, to be honest. Uh, I did uh, did the gathering last weekend, which is my, my regular venture into uh, into costume uh, shenanigans with, uh, with another couple of thousand people up in a field in Derby, which we ran a laser and puppet show, which was, was very entertaining and apparently uh, uh, people very much enjoyed. Um, so I've had to write some scripts for that and some other pieces. But I mean, other than that, actually, I've, I've been eyes down on editing uh, a book that's due out in three weeks, which is Lord of Wissamere, and working on Elite Lave Revolution, which is now 
Wow, we're we're in the closing section, as it were. I had a, a sort of an aim as to how long it was going to be. And I think I'm in agreement with most of the other writers at the moment who are kind of saying, oh, actually, it's going to be a little bit longer. I think actually the first draft is going to be a little bit longer than I thought. But that doesn't really matter. Completely, I've, I've certainly got a lot more down than I anticipated having ready uh, by this time in the year. So that's great. And yeah, so it's it, just a case of doing my writing every day. I have disappeared a little bit occasionally when I've had to get my head down and get on with it. But um no, I don't think I've particularly not been around. Uh, it just seems that the the lave, you know, our lave radio uh, chat on Skype seems to be very, very quiet over the last two weeks. You, know, you oh, guys seem to have been uh, yeah, AWOL. It's perhaps because you're boring now, Foz. Well, John did say the other day that uh, he would spend more time actually in the Skype channel if people were spending more time talking about Elite. But unfortunately, the rest of us, certainly Jarvis and I, have been talking more about Animal Crossing than we have been about Elite Dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is a bit sad. I'll completely agree with that. But uh, I mean, just at the moment, with all the holidays and stuff that's going on at uh, Frontier Developments, there's not a great deal of new information coming out. Well, yeah, it has been quiet. But now that John and Chris have got access to the DDF, you know, they don't need to talk to me anymore. That's, you know, that seems to be what they've realized. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Mr. Stabler, what have you been up to? Well, I've had to prioritize what I did do because uh, I've had a lot of real life, you know, proper work on my job. Uh, the thing I get paid for. But with the little time I have had left, I've actually spent on the forums and in the DDF and, and catching up with stuff like that. And I've done a bit of blogging as well and goading Frontier into giving us information. Do you want to shed a little bit of light on that here? Probably going to talk about it later, but um, I opened a thread talking about the concept of, I don't like the term griefing, but looking at Eve for a template of, you know, this kind of cold and dark and dangerous um, universe, you know, how much is um, Elite Dangerous going to be like that? For instance, with Eve, you can scam people on the forums. It's perfectly allowed. You know, it's outside of the game, but you can uh, scam them. And I was just wondering, you know, if, if Elite was going to allow similar behaviour. Okay, well, we'll probably touch on that in uh, a little bit of the community corner then, because it is, it is one of the most interesting things that's been going on in the forum over the last couple of weeks. So from my perspective, things have been a little bit interesting. Certainly real life has been interesting. I was uh, gearing up to go away on holiday to the south of France on uh, Saturday. We we're recording this on, on Thursday night. But unfortunately, my little boy has uh, sprung up in the pox. He's just turned two and he's got chicken pox and he does look like Super Ted's best friend. And I know there's a couple of people on the forum who are only 16. Super Ted was a cartoon in the 80s. Go and look it up on YouTube. And you know who we're talking about, James. So that's been quite interesting. We've had to sort of cancel our holiday and, uh, and reschedule a bit. So it does mean, guys, that I'm going to miss the next episode of Lay Radio. So you're going to have to try and find a guest host or, or all cuddle together and try and do the job yourselves. Work's been ridiculously, uh, ridiculously busy, and that sort of kept me away from Skype a bit. Yeah, a big apology to the uh, the, the guys that are doing the the retro lave show with us because uh, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, they've been postponed, I think, two weeks in a row now due to one thing or another that's come up in uh, in my real life. So massive apologies to the to those guys, especially to Grant, who unfortunately was our vanguard in the last show, who had to stay behind and play uh, tacky on the fringe uh, for what he thought was going to be a week, which has turned into three weeks. 
And he tells me there's only so much Bruce Campbell you can actually take after three weeks. So apologies to Grant, but uh, Retro Label will be back very, very soon. I don't believe that for two seconds. How can you have too much Bruce Campbell? You'd be amazed, actually. I mean, he was, he was if, you listen to, uh, if you listen to the last uh, Retro Label podcast, you could see that there was no bigger Bruce Campbell fan than, uh, than Grant Walcott. But in the last few messages he sent to me on Skype, he, uh, yeah, he is ever so slightly sick of Bruce Campbell's voice now. So, uh, yeah, massive apologies to Grant. Okay, so that's what we've been up to. Well, the first bit of development news this week comes from the form of the Fiction Diary number five, where Michael Brooks talks a little bit about the process of putting together the universe. Uh, when I was watching this, the, I immediately thought of you, Mr. Stroud, and thinking that you might have some interesting things to say on this. To be fair, one of the things that was revealed in the video was the fact that they're going to come to each of the writers in turn and really work with them to try and flesh and realise some of the elements that are featured in the storybooks. Um, within the game now we kind of knew this a little bit in you know in ourselves in our our discussions with frontier but the fact that they're trying to realize as much of it as they can i think is is really really cool and the fact that they're going to come to each of us in turn and go through the the detail of our drafts to look at what things could go in and you know what they can they can add in to create significance and connect things directly i think is going to be amazing so yeah it was a really really exciting moment and it's certainly it's one of the first of the video diaries that started a thread off in the writers forum where we started talking about you know some of the possibilities related to it we actually started a, a thread discussing some of the elements and uh, and some of the things that could be included based on the revelation that we were you know, going to be that involved with the development of, uh, of the world mechanics. I think we can probably go into a bit more detail on that when we get to uh, the discussion on the writers' forum later on. Okay, great. If we're going to leave that there, maybe we should just go straight into the questions, uh, starting with Andrew Sayer, who asked, how will fast travel hyperdrives change society? Will they, in fact, bring the far-flung colonies closer or cause them to be flung yet further away? Alan? One of the things that Michael revealed was that um, the the new drive technology is very recent as an innovation. Um, we've been we've been looking at specifically how this has been implemented, and it is you know a very very recent innovation prior to Elite Dangerous, which I think is is a good idea and a good choice to make because what it does is is it stops the the sort of the new instantaneous element of travel being too much of an effect on the explosion of humanity across the galaxy before now. So it makes the moment that the players start the game quite quite important, quite realistic in that regard. You know, it gives them a premise point, a jumping off point. And one of the things actually I said to Michael back in early January was about this idea of the point of departure of your story and having this this point being everything funneling towards where you want your story to, to start. And really the hyperdrives and the change to the hyperdrives is fundamental to that. It means that society has gradually progressed at this stage. So as things have gone, the amount of, of colonies and the amount of ability to, you know, for humanity to spread has been fairly, fairly progressive but slower. And now we have the opportunity to, to really sort of um, motor across quite a large section of, uh, of the galaxy. It's still tempered because obviously the galaxy is huge that we're going to be working in, but it does mean that there is a lot of potential for players to go out and really explore. And that kind of reinforces the USP of the game. I think everything Alan says sounds great. And I think there's a distinction sometimes between when you look at kind of, if you kind of imagine settled worlds, that there's a distinction between how long it takes to get somewhere and the kind of the will to colonize or populate somewhere. I mean, if you look at somewhere like the United States, there's there's huge areas of the United States that aren't actually 
massively populated. And it's not for an inability to get there within a fairly short period of time. It's really just about what resources are there, how practical it is to create settlements. So I think you'll get, I think we have a perspective at the moment, you know, on, on 21st century Earth, that any planet we can reasonably get to, you know, in any kind of reasonable way, we should be thinking about how we can convert it for living. Whereas actually, if you took that away and just said, well, look, the whole galaxy is now kind of achievable within a reasonable lifespan. Where do you want to live? That actually colonization becomes um, much more selective. And if you look at historical things like the Roman Empire, a lot of it becomes about how practical is it to defend your empire over a large area as opposed to, you know, where can we get to? The interesting thing, I think, as well, is that with the fact that we've got this this new invention, it as I said, it, it puts the players in an interesting premise point. It does make the idea of colonization something um, much more you know, feasible, much more uh, organic, something that you know, is quite dynamic in terms of the game. It means logistics in relation to actually launching um, naval fleets and stuff into attacks. You know, your support logistics are, are very different now. So it will be very interesting to see how Frontier balances this with their game premise, because they've talked about the idea that the main factions are at Cold War. But if they are at that stage of Cold War and you know that some of these really large ships have got these awesome hyperdrives that mean they could just ping around anywhere and you wouldn't know they were there until, you know, you started to get distress calls and everything else you know the the emphasis comes back to the attacker which is going to be very interesting to see how they balance that to try and maintain the premise that they've attempted to establish yeah absolutely and it kind of i mean that links on quite nicely with another question that came in this one from uh, commandante which was will the factions that we know about be at war and will this result in territories that will be dangerous to fly through uh, and Alan, you're probably the best person to uh, to answer this one or to uh, to comment on michael's answer on this one you know, I mean, there are already territories that we know from the history of the previous games that are particularly damaged or particularly disputed. There are going to be additional territories that are under dispute based on some of the fiction. So people will be able to read the books and find out about particular places and know that that's going to be a hot spot or a war zone. Yeah, there's there's actually there's quite a lot already, you know, sort of out there to, to sort of look through and find out about that relates to where these zones are and at the same time you know if you know that the main factions are going to be quite uh, static then it means that they are more likely to be working through through minions working through um you know through players perhaps and even through you know through sort of corporations and companies to try and see what what certain things will uh, you know what what ground they can grab as it were certainly i think there's going to be a multi-layered approach to this. I think the, the the central premise of if you're hoping that the Federation and the Empire are just going to go at each other like a pair of boxers in the ring, it's it's probably not going to happen. You know, they're 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 pretty much stationary unless something utterly major happens that lots of players get behind or or something else. There will be a tipping point, but in the most part, I think that you're going to see that those factions are going to stay, you know, sort of bristling and looking at each other. But they're going to be looking to, you know, to get one up on each other in, in small ways. And I think that's where the players come in. So I think it'd be really interesting. I mean, it's good that you mentioned there that the, you know, there's quite a lot of information out there for the player to read up on in terms of, you know, the fiction will be realized within the game. Because that was the second question that Andrew Sayer asked, which was how closely will fiction interact with the 
in-game storytelling. Now, Michael said that there would be, you know, some of the books are actually obviously set in a different time frame from where the uh, the player will actually be exposed. But even those pieces of fiction that were set in the past will still have some sort of representation, either in monuments or things to explore that tie them into the actual in-game universe, which I thought was a great way of, you know, of just sort of giving back a bit to the people that have pledged their, you know, their writer's pack money to the game. Now, Alan, you're probably going to be able to flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that touches on some of the stuff we've been discussing in the forum, as I as I mentioned earlier. To be fair, if I if I take it from a personal perspective, my book's set in thirty two sixty five, so you know there's thirty odd years between then and the kickoff of Elite Dangerous. Within that time, certain political things have changed uh, in the systems that I'm working on, and there is stuff there that um, uh, that you would see the aftermath of. But at the same time, I'm writing with a very conscious eye on the fact that there's going to be an awful lot of players going into this game universe in 3300. I don't want those players to go in in 3300 and have nothing from what happened in the plot of my book. I want them to be very connected to the plot of my book. So despite the fact that it's 35 years before they go in, you know, there will be elements that they can absolutely just just, you know, sort of grab and go, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, this is this is the kind of person I'm playing. He was connected because of this, and so on and so forth. You know, we've had some forum uh, discussions on role playing and what have you. I think the fiction really does fuel that kind of approach. You know, the the idea of sort of centering yourself as to where you are within this game universe, I think, is incredible. And I, I think we have a real opportunity here with uh, with this game to do that. Okay, so we'll do our first topic of the DDF this week, and this time it is from Barry Clark on the subject of NPC contacts and elite. NPC contacts are AI pilots that like a player so much they are willing to be helpful and supportive, like a little computerized best friend of your very own. Now, the term contact can be added to any NPCs within Elite Dangerous and allows players to create a group of friendly artificial intelligences willing to help them and provide benefits and missions. Any Tier 2 NPC can be made into a contact with each AI character having a tracked player reputation level that can be increased or decreased. Now, the first thing to pick up on this is uh, that comment about any Tier 2 NPC. Just for my benefit, does anybody know what level of NPCs we're going to have and what they relate to. Yeah, well, there's been some discussion previously when talking about NPCs in the Elite Dangerous Universe about tier... So I think they were talking about tier 1 NPCs, tier 2 NPCs, and tier 3 NPCs. I'm not sure if, on the basis of this new context thing, whether that whether that's changed. It was a discussion about the kinds of characters you come across and tier 1 NPCs being very much the tops of organisations. So, you know, the president... Or, or whatever it is of the Federation, the Emperor uh, of the Empire, um, CEOs of major corporations. These are all Tier 1 NPCs that I think are are shared across everybody's version of the game. And generally, you have very little interaction with. And I think previously there was talk about Tier 2 and Tier 3, but I think really what they're talking about with Tier 2 is that these could potentially be unique to your game. So procedurally generated characters. And these are people that you interact with on a day-to-day basis. Um, so shop owners, shipyard sellers, you know, um, military contacts that give you missions. And I think that's what they that's what they're referring to about tier two NPCs, procedurally generated characters that you encounter. OK, well, I mean, looking at it, the NPC contacts, you are basically uh, once you've done enough sort of reputation building within a certain faction or within or with this particular NPC themselves, then they will give you the option of adding their contact to your contact list. Now, interestingly, you know, this NPC will be contactable from anywhere in space at any time, which is you know, slightly different to the normal sort of space in where you have to actually fly 
fly to the planet or that particular spaceport to get in touch with them. You'll be able to see once you've made these contacts, whether or not they've got any jobs for you or whether or not, you know, they were in the likes of uh, like a trader NPC uh, contact, whether or not they will take any of the, the goods that you're carrying for a slightly inflated price. So, I mean, it's going to be quite interesting. Obviously, if you do anything against that particular contacts faction your reputation maybe could decrease to the level that they actually sort of fall out of love with you and then they disappear from your contacts list and what elite dangerous are actually saying is that there's going to be certain you know, archetypal contacts that you can get so you'll have a, a trader contact you might have a a police or authority contract a smuggler contact that we talked about last week maybe a military contact or a bounty hunter and all of these different archetypes will give you different you know different missions or different sort of benefits of being connected to them so say you have a police contact, for example, they will allow a player to get away with certain low-level crimes in their particular system. And they may be able to be called on to provide support if the player's in combat. You know, if you look at maybe a bounty hunter, they will provide you with high-level bounties and missions, etc., etc. Interesting limitations to this is that certain archetypes will refuse to become a contact with you if you have contacts already that are opposed to them. So, for example, if you have high pirate contacts, there's no way a trader is going to touch you with a 10-foot barge pole until you either get rid of that contact or build up your reputation in trading to the extent where they'll actually take you on your own merits. Uh, quite an interesting way of doing it. As I say, different in the fact that you can you know, contact these people at any point in the galaxy as opposed to going to particular planets or you know, spaceports to actually uh, make contact with them. What do you guys think? I think the problem with with that communication element is that we don't yet know how that's defined. I'm kind of hoping it's not effectively an appeal to God, as it were. <laughs> so you you know, so there's no in-game mechanic. You can just get hold of them. We've discussed a little bit before now about you know sort of different levels of how communication is done and whether you know faster than light communication is is possible and how it's possible and how it works. So I'm kind of hoping that if you can get hold of these guys, it actually, you know, with everything else that we've we've done so far or looked at so far, they've tried to commodify things. And I'm kind of hoping that kind of communication is commodified. I don't like the idea of them just being snap your fingers. Hello, Genie. You know, I need to know this. I think that's that's a bit rubbish. I'd like to be able to work. Uh, you know, for these people and, and their time should be important you know it, it's an opportunity for game so you know I, I, I get that the idea that it could be a bit boring having to fly all the way back to go and find so and so and so and so but you can kind of find a, a medium between those and I think that that should be the way in which it should work I don't think they should be just available at, you know, at your beck and call at any time particularly if it's you know a faction general it would be rubbish I mean, what they're talking about is, you know, that is indeed going to be the case that, you know, once they're added, the contacts will be visible and you will know exactly where they are and the approximate location at any point in time. From what the design is saying, it is almost like a, a click your fingers and contact will be established with these guys. What is it that puts you off about that? Well, it's realism. I don't mind the idea that you'll know where they are. You know, transpondering them, I think is fine, you know, and then flying there for a meet or if you know that they are in a location where they can, you know, they can receive a, a communication, I think that's perfectly fine. But they shouldn't just be snap your fingers and hear them. You know, I think that's rubbish. You know, there, there's an opportunity here for to work a bit of game. You know, if you if you want to get a general and he's you know, currently engaged in military manoeuvres, then you've got to go and find him. You know, you've got to go and make the, the, the connection and, and, and make the point to him that actually it's important that you speak to him. I just, I think it's a bit rubbish if it's, 
if it's just really easy. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you can also think of maybe, you know, if you're trying to have a, a what you'd call maybe a sensitive conversation, like you wouldn't want to do that over the sort of the wide band. You'd want to be in the, at least in the same system and have a more secure communication with your contact in order to be able to relay maybe sensitive information between the two of you. Absolutely. Um, no, I totally agree with that because um, one of the fundamental things that, you know, without divulging too much in terms of plot, but one of the fundamental things I've been working through with with my book is the idea of recorded conversations of secret information, of surveillance society, of the, the means by which everything could be a commodity and getting a private line to someone is actually really expensive. And you have to go through a company and you have to trust their reputation that they're not going to take a copy of your call and so on and so forth. You know, that that's that's quite detailed in the fiction and I, I kinda don't want it to be snap your fingers in the game. Okay, well I mean it makes sense to me, Alan. We'll see how uh, we'll see how it develops. John? Yeah, just to add on to that as well, that um, if you're able to communicate with people instantly, no matter where you are, then when this update does come out where you can walk around space stations, what's the point of it? Why would you bother docking and walking around to go and meet someone if, if there's a way you can just click your fingers and speak to them instantly from anywhere Again, in the galaxy? Again, maybe it would come back down to the you know, the security of the communication and the fact that you know if you meet someone face-to-face, then there's a possibility of having a much more secure connection with that person than, uh, you know, than over the traditional communications that you've got. Yeah, but... Unfortunately, what we're getting from the way this is proposed at the moment is it's not going to come down to that, that this is this is a convenience. And I don't want to be critical, you know, too critical, but it does sound that way at the moment. And, you know, the, the suggestion that you're you're giving that it's, you know, it's a further contrivance of the, you know, of the, the way in which the game would respond. There's no indication of that so far. So, you know, let's let's hope they think of something. I, I don't like it as it is. <laughs> okay. I mean, maybe we should mention what the discussion points are for the DDF. So this has obviously gone into the DDF in the last week or so, and they've been looking for you know, comments from the uh, the DDF backers on a number of issues. Now, they've asked, you know, should the number of contacts be limited or expanded to create a web of artificial intelligent allies? It feels like having too many contacts would become maybe unwieldy. Uh, should we force limits on the contacts? What do you guys think about that? Should you have a <laughs> a little black notebook that's uh, full to the rafters, or should you be maybe limited to your you know your ten closest contacts? The point I made about it on the on the forum itself was I don't think you need to artificially limit the there, there was a question about whether there should be a, a finite number of relationships that you can maintain, and I think one of the things that excites me about this particular proposal is that by having potentially procedurally generated characters and by having individual characters that have you know an individual relation rather than a faction relationship that you might have with say the federation or the empire this is an individual character that responds specifically to things you have done that relate to them and it's a very good way if you have a range of these characters and you've kind of for one reason or another had to respond to their needs differently you very quickly create a very complex network of relationships and i think that's exciting from an immersion point of view but i think in terms of limiting it and saying well you can only have seven of these i mean one of the things obviously you know we talk about animal crossing a lot because <laughs> you know you and i are playing it but one of the things about animal crossing is about maintaining relationships with the characters in the village and there is a hard limit of sort of you know, 10 at any time because it's the most that you can have. But I actually find that in terms of a game experience, maintaining those relationships and keeping those NPCs on side and me kind of in their good books, I I can't keep up with all of them at once. And I think there's a very similar 
potential thing, depending on how they do it with Elite Dangerous. If you have to constantly be responding to the needs of these NPCs in order to stay in their good books, i.e. the kind of what have you done for me recently kind of mentality, I don't think you need to artificially limit it because I think people will have to pick a small number of NPCs that they really value, that they really need to maintain those relationships, and it will naturally limit itself. I don't think people, I think if you make it so that these relationships fade over time, if you don't nurture them, then I think A, it's more realistic, and I think B, you naturally limit the amount of NPCs that a player can call on at any given time. Of all the stuff that we've seen about procedural gameplay and the way of making your experience very different to another player's, for me, this is one of the most exciting elements. And one game that I mentioned on, on the thread that I think Barry came back and said he really liked as well is a game called Alpha Protocol, which is a, a sort of you know console role-playing shooter. And you have this cast of characters within the game, each of whom have a relationship with you. And depending on how you play the game with them, your relationship with them changes on an individual basis. And, and as I say, very quickly, you end up with a very complex web of inter-character relationships much more than you would get from, you know, trying to script an event or even from just trying to extrapolate your federation or independent or, or, or empire uh, reputation. Okay, so you, you quite like the idea of having this sort of big list of contacts and before you take a, you know, a new role or a new mission with someone, you actually look at your contact list and have a look at you know, what effect that will have on your other contacts, you know, either good or bad, and take that into account when you make your decision to accept the mission. Is that, what you're, is that how you'd like to see it go? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to see it that you almost... I mean, like, I'm, sure, I'm sure Alan would agree with me on this, that sometimes negative aspects of game choices are just as valuable. I'd like to be in a situation where I can't please one NPC mm. without making an enemy of another one. And, and I, don't, I don't want to have just an NPC list of kind of toadying contacts that I can call on for favours. I want to have a, a web of NPCs, some of whom want to give me missions or help me out, some of whom want to see me, you know, take a bad turn or or get shot up or whatever. And I'd like to see those NPC relationships having an effect on each other. So, you know, can I be best friends with the head of the Federal Navy and the head of some smuggling family cartel at the same time? I don't know that I can maintain those two NPC friendships without each of them being pissed off that I'm in a relationship with the other one, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly within the design brief at the moment, that would not be possible because they're, they're literally sort of designing that out in the fact that, you know, take the example of pirate versus trader again. If you were a, you know, a high-standing reputation with pirates, then they will make it to such a degree that your reputation, no matter what you do for the trading aspect, will go up at such a slow rate that you will probably never get to a high reputation level within the traders guild as it were or within the you know the trading contact guild john what's you what's your thoughts on this yeah well uh, no i definitely agree with chris you know l let the list limit it itself so that you know as it gets large if you stop talking to someone maybe they will eventually drop off the list but don't artificially limit it also it'd be good if that frontier could in a way reward players who choose to interact with more npcs so players who can actually juggle all these relationships they can have more people on their list than someone who's just concerned with going out mining, regular trading, or, or just focusing on their military career. Reward players who can have lots of uh, relationships, you know, make diplomacy part of the game. It's a skill within itself. No, I think it's a great suggestion, and maybe you know, do it in such a way that, uh, you know, you have 
you know, very rare missions that require you to be able to have a high standing in, um, you know, various contacts. So a high standing in smugglers, a high standing in military and a high standing in police to pull off this one particular very, very rare mission. And that would be your reward for, as you say, juggling all the particular reputations around. Alan? Yeah, it's a it's a game unlocker, isn't it, really? I mean, all of these contacts should be there to provide you with game and having a higher relationship with each one should provide you with greater access to particular parts of the game. The self-limiting, what we're talking about, about the self-limiting, I think that will happen because, you know, some people will spend more time in the game and therefore be able to maintain more relationships. But by doing that that actually dilutes them a little bit because we've talked about this idea of the the social gamer and the um you know the sort of every day or every hour game or or you know someone who's going to commit more man hours to the game if they want to do that that's fine if you've created a distribution of different npc contacts across lots of different power bases then those individuals may well be able to spread themselves across lots of of different places but one individual who is just coming on and, and spending a few hours playing the game can work in one area and still compete do you see what i mean yeah in terms of the you know and i think that's a very clever way in which you can solve some of the issues related to different you know different commitments of play that people have similarly i mean chris is right i completely agree with him in that those negative relationships i think are going to be good as well and i think the opportunity for you to lose a contact or to you know, not have enough time to keep up with a contact and therefore that contact to effectively burn you, start betraying you, start selling you out, setting you up for ambushes, etc., etc., etc. I think that's that's awesome, you know, and I'd, I'd really like to see that. So I think the proposal as it is, is good. Just don't like the communication bit. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, we're, we're talking about the limitations aspects and, you know, whether or not it's possible to juggle all these different contacts. And that's actually, that's actually one, of the, uh, one of the other discussion points that they're trying to get out from the DDF is that, you know, what about limitations? Should, you know, NPCs have an automatic knowledge of your other associations? Or can you think of a way where maybe, you know, you, you try and keep the fact that you're actually an ace smuggler hidden from your, you know, your police authority contact? How can you imagine that working? Uh, start with you, Chris. On the one hand, I don't like the idea that NPCs just have a magic understanding of everything that you're doing. It's hard to know in a game like Elite, which, which let's not lose sight of the fact, is, is primarily a game about you sitting in the cockpit of a ship and flying it around. It's hard to know what kind of interface you will have with the game where you can nuance these relationships in such a way of, well, I'm keeping that secret from him. And I think, and I'm very suspicious of any, you, it's something you could simulate in the background, but I've, as, as we've mentioned previously, there is a danger in games that you sim- simulate lots of really clever things the player doesn't see. And actually, as a player, unless you see a direct cause and effect in something happening, a player, an NPC behind the scenes finding out about your relationship from somewhere else and then reacting to it, there's a danger that you're not really going to understand why that's happened. So I can see from a game point of view that it would be necessary for NPCs to kind of know what your dealings are with each other. Hard to know how to get around it. You know, unless the NPCs have some very simple labels on them, i.e. whether they are kind of lawful or unlawful. And therefore, if you're friends with a high-ranking, you know, part of the police thing, and then you gain a criminal record for doing something dodgy, maybe that impacts on that relationship because they just cannot maintain a relationship with you with a criminal record. 
Yeah, I mean, that's quite interesting. And that's how certainly how I thought maybe it would go down. If you were, say, running a smuggler mission for your smuggler contact and you actually failed that mission, uh, maybe one of the ramifications, you know, just to heap the pressure on the player, one of the ramifications of failing that mission is also the fact that your police authority contact will get to hear of it. So, you know, just adds just you know, that little bit more incentive to you or, the, or that little bit more pressure to make sure that you actually succeed in uh, in that particular contract that you're taking out. John? I don't want to see, you know, NPCs in effect, you know, being obviously, you know, overtly omniscient that as soon as you do something against them for someone else that straight away, you know, there's an obvious problem and they're going to pull you up on it. But just like in real life, even if nothing directly gets back to somebody you can't be a pirate lord without the police knowing even if they haven't seen you commit a crime if you know what i mean because people talk so that's the kind of thing i want to see like for instance you know you might um you might lose your ship in a certain system and end up uh, as part of your um insurance policy you agreed to go and do a couple of missions for a particular faction well that shouldn't necessarily just all of a sudden you know kill your reputation with whatever your main choice of faction is but at the same time no, I, I can't see, you know, people being pirate lord and also the chief inspector of police. Well, there's an easy solution to this that was already implemented in Frontier First Encounters, which is where some of the missions were scripted to fit directly into the news feeds. So what would happen is the player would do something which was already set up in the game in terms of the storyline. They would do something and their name or something related to them would appear in the newsfeed so they could see about you know a couple of days later um, a report on what had actually happened or a slightly skewed report on what had happened would appear. Obviously, with the fact that we've got a multiplayer game and you know it's all a, a little bit sort of different with the, the tied-in information of the servers, that's going to be a little bit more challenging to, to implement. But there's nothing that doesn't stop contact gaining information and specifically i mean they may gain more information than this if they're you know if they're um uh, their, their own information network is is clever but there's nothing to stop them reading the newspaper and then working out that it was you no no i think that no that kind of gels with what i said you know that uh, they may not have direct knowledge at the time that you've done something but eventually if you keep on in a certain direction they're going to find out about it and you don't necessarily need to kind of have a specific game mechanic which will make it obvious that they found out it's just going to be like common yeah but it also it it works really nicely if you think that it's going to be media coverage works really nicely that if you're given a mission to do you've got to do that mission in a particular way because if you know you don't do it in a particular way you know it's going to end up in the news and they might have your ship id in the news and then that's going to jeopardize your contact with so-and-so because you've actually been working for so-and-so. You know, how cool is that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think as well, just you shouldn't know that that relationship has diminished until you next try and speak to them. Oh, yeah, that's you know a I mean? massive and, point. That's a massive point. You know, there should and, be no yeah. no green, yellow and red bars or, you know, or sort of ratings of, of reputation. You know, it should all be down to the way in which you talk to them and the way in which they talk to you. I yeah, mean, you'd I, love, I think you'd that's love to get in contact with, with one of your NPCs and then them kind of responding, well, you know, well, looky who just walked back in. <laughs> <laughs> fetch, fetch the bats, boys. <laughs> or worse, or worse, you know, fuck off. 
Okay, and the final point on this was, uh, should players be able to make contact with Tier 1 NPCs? Uh, would having the President of the Federation as a contact be a little bit over the top? Now, obviously, we just talked about the, you know, the various different uh, tiers of NPC contact. Do you guys think it would actually sort of break the immersion if the, you know, the head of the Federation or the Emperor would actually contact you and say, look, you know, I've got this you know, secret mission that you know, I believe that only you are going to be able to handle? Yeah, it would be rubbish. Um, I think it's too easy a cop-out, and the problem is that once you do it, you can't go anywhere. If you think about all the TV series, all the you know, the, the sort of science fiction films or anything else where people save the world and they're you know, congratulated when they come back to Earth and do this, that and the other, you can't go anywhere after that because you've basically you've given access directly to the top of the of the organization you can only go down and of course it's just going to be disappointing you might have a wonderful mission it might be incredible but after that you can't top it so there's no point in doing it don't say that though you know don't 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 put the point across that while it's not possible to you know to get in touch with the president of uh, of the federation or to get in touch with the emperor but you've got to handle that kind of tier one connection really carefully so that it's not direct so you know maybe you get um something from a chamberlain who says well actually his excellency has indicated this well what did he say he said there is a fly in my ointment and and that's it. You know, you don't get anything more. You don't even know who he meant or anything else. And then the Chamberlain interprets it and so on and so forth. That's the kind of way I'd like to see that kind of, you know, contact working. Because, you know, at the most, because if you have that direct relationship, like I said, you won't have anywhere to go once it's done. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, I think if you're going to have that, even the, sort of the Chamberlain style of uh, contact, I think it needs to be only when you actually hit the elite status give the people that have actually put the time into the game and got to their elite status, you know, somewhere to go with it. Uh, not to the complete top, to the emperor, but, you know, where they can maybe feel that because they are an elite pilot, that they are getting access to certain special missions that come with that ranking. Yeah, and it also, the game premise has been set up very carefully so that, you know, this game doesn't fall into the the hands of becoming massively player-driven. I mean, you know, it, it's player-interactive, and it has an evolving universe stuff will will change and happen based on player action. I think that's good and I'm I'm you know a big believer in in large player levers. But with the the set of the Cold War and the way in which the organizations the most important people in the organizations are always going to be NPCs, that's a self-regulator. And I think what you do is if you provide direct access to the highest possible tier of that, you're kind of setting yourself up to have someone yank a lever that you might not want them to, you know, to pull. You only have to look at Eve to see where it goes in that regard. And I, I don't think we want that. You know, it isn't the game that, that this would set out to be. Okay, well, I think that's going to do it for the uh, contact section. So uh, we'll wait and see how that unfolds in the next week or so, and we'll bring you the revised proposal when it actually comes out. Okay, well, that's going to do it for that DDF topic. What we're going to do is we're going to cut to an ad break and come straight back to talk about passenger cabins. Want to tour the frontier? Travel with Colmac Reeve and our new fleet of passenger starliners. We've opened up the universe for a range of budgets. Option one, luxury. My husband and I like to travel in comfort. The new luxury cabins were like a home away from home. After all, one's home is a castle. Option two, first class. We'd saved up a bit for a really special trip. The first class cabins were like nothing we've travelled in before. Really luxurious. Option three, travel cabin. We would a trip, 
with Cormac Reeves monthly lotto, a travel cabin for two on a starliner around the solar system. Once in a lifetime for us, simply amazing. Option four, basic accommodation. Me and my mates just wanted to hitch around the universe. It's so great that we have the option of getting a really cheap cabin to see the sights. It saved us loads. And for the budget conscious and slaves, we have our cheapest option yet. Well, I needed it. And we won't sell any of those frozen passengers into slavery, I promise. Call Mac Reeves all budget tours, seeing the galaxy from luxury to freezing tubes. Okay, so passenger cabins. We talked about it in the last episode. This time we've had a revision to the passenger cabins, and that is focusing on the cabins and quality of transport for passengers. Uh, John, I believe you've been reading up on this. What can you tell us? Basically, there's only two changes slash additions. The first addition is they've gone into a bit more detail about the types of cabin that you can have before, although they didn't say that it was just going to be the two types you know, the stasis and then a regular passenger cabin. They did allude to, to different types maybe beyond that but they've kind of fleshed out a bit more so you know you've got the class one which is the status uh tube rack which can fit a couple of people into they travel in stasis there's no chance to kind of interact with them during the trip but then you've got the basic passenger cabin and then you've got these extra ones which increase the luxury um and as the luxury increases so does your chance of getting uh you know uh, a mission or something off them that's that's going to benefit you financially probably Uh, and the second bit of news uh, probably the best piece of news as far as we're concerned is that um, whereas before they were just talking about in regular ships you could only have stasis tubes and that only passenger liners could have cabins they've now kind of gone back and had a thought and they've now said that uh, you can put basic passenger cabins on your ship as well which i think is was a good decision so the the basic passenger cabin is what we would be imagine what we're seeing in um, you know frontier and first encounters it's a it's a powered cabin that allows a single passenger to be transported in a conscious state and it basically features rudimentary facilities but uh, passengers and basic passenger cabins have a low chance of offering the player a low paying mission whilst en route and this is something that we mentioned in the last episode it was it was a shame to think that yeah, in the world of sort of passenger transportation where you know you've got all this rich mission offerings available to you where you could you know maybe go and take your passenger on a sightseeing tour or maybe do some sort of daredevil stunts or stuff it was a shame that that was only going to be available to you know your your luxury liners or your or your bigger ships so within the the cabin class the basic passenger cabin allows you to actually have yeah it's going to be rare i would imagine but still the option within your normal ships of being able to explore some of those sort of missions so just sort of to give you the breakdown, we've got class one through to five. Class one is your stasis tube racks. Uh, class two is your basic passenger cabin. They're available on any ship within the game. And then moving up three to five are only available on your passenger liners. So you've got uh, travel cabins, which is the equivalent of traveling in um, second class in today's world. First class cabins and then luxury cabins. So I think I think we we'll probably all agree that the uh, that's, a, that's a good revision. Yeah, it's a good revision. I still think there's one thing I'd... I'd suggest that they should change it with is particularly the Imperial ships. I I still think that you could have very, you know, sort of dignitary guests on a, uh, an Imperial ship that isn't a passenger liner. I think that might be important. You know, if if you had, if you had an ambassador or a a messenger who was taking a a particularly important sort of thing and wanted to fly quickly and discreetly, um, I think they shouldn't necessarily have to slum it 
if you see what I mean. So that would be my only exception to the way in which they've got it set up. No, I think that's probably a good point. The um, I suppose the caveat to that is the fact that when they're talking about these cabins, the luxury ones, uh, they take up a lot of space. They take up a lot of, um, you know, uh, weights and they restrict the amount of other modules and stuff that you can fit onto your ship. So say you were in an Imperial Courier, for example, and you wanted to take you know, one particularly high-class passenger, it would almost force your hand to sort of get rid of your guns, get rid of your sort of, you know, your shields and stuff, and maybe rely on, what, escort facilities? I mean, I, I guess you could have a really important Imperial Ambassador book out a whole liner, but that seems a bit obvious, doesn't it? You know, if you had to make a secret trip to go and conduct secret negotiations you want something a bit small quick and and you don't want to be necessarily in a stasis tube because it'd spoil your dress robes wouldn't it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i see your point and it actually it raises uh, an interesting discussion that was being had on the ddf about what these ships are actually going to look like i must confess when we were talking about the big sort of passenger liners in my head i had almost sort of uh, imagined like a cruise ship with you know, hundreds of members of you know staff or crew uh, looking after everybody's you know particular needs and what we said last week in terms of you know approaching a travel agency who would uh, give you contracts to to fill your liner one of the things they said in the ddf is that you know with the current design proposal that doesn't really make a lot of sense you're not going to see this sort of the massive cruise ship or it's going to more closely resemble a luxury yacht liner uh, where you'd have maybe a crew of maybe five or six the sort of thing you'd see sort of parked up in Saint-Tropez or somewhere like that that's going to be your uh, your luxury cabin holders that's going to be your you know, the liners that we're going to see in Elite Dangerous would you guys agree with that or do you think there is a place for the uh, the massive Mediterranean cruise ships going around the Elite Dangerous universe there's a market for as we've discussed before um, things like Farming Simulator 2013 and there's you know you can you can play you can play like Microsoft Flight Simulator and fly a 747 from London to New York or whatever. I think there's always a market for people just to do these real kind of cattle runs. But I think, I don't know, I think in terms of interesting and exciting gameplay, I can see how smaller numbers of guests create a very different kind of experience. Yeah, it's tricky as well in that you kind of got to look at what is the the interest in in doing that kind of run. I, you know, I've I've flown lots of different ships in different games, and when you fly the slower ships, you think that the reason you're flying the slower ship is because you gain some kind of capacity or you gain some kind of thing that you can do. That becomes problematic when you're on a liner because you're not really gaining anything in terms of your flight mechanic. You know, usually if you're flying a bomber, you're gaining some you know some guns or what have you. So yeah. So I, I, I kind of don't know where the extra is going to be um, in terms of the gameplay. It's got to be money, hasn't it? Yeah, but you know, but that's not not really very directly good, is it? You know, it, it doesn't immerse you in the gameplay that you're having straight away. No, that's um, right. That it, would only, is, it would only give you money to buy a different ship. Yeah, and that just gives you or, or different upgrades. That just gives you reward. If if you take the example of X, there's a there's a yacht in X that you can you know you can fly an X two, and it's great. You know, it's a nice little yacht, and you can you can have a little fighter on the back of it, which is really cool. But you know, and it takes a bit of a pounding, but it's a bit slow in a dogfight. You can also fly the freighters. The freighters are horrible to fly, absolutely dreadful. But the point is, you're flying a freighter, so you know, and your your reward is the cargo. My problem with the the passenger liner is, I think that I think it'd be a limited. You know, if it's so specialised that people have to buy them and then have to do the upkeep and everything else, can't see people flying them continuously if they were huge. You know, so it's like flying a ferry all the time. I think it would be more appropriate with this this sort of yacht idea that they've got. So yeah, you know, but I'd still like to see the Imperials have something 
Okay, and in the final topic of the DDF this week, uh, one that has been causing a little bit of controversy, maybe, uh, within the forums, and that is of slavery. This one came from Sandro Simaco, lead designer of Elite Dangerous. Obviously, we've talked about slavery in the game quite a bit up to this point, but this was the first time in the DDF where we actually sort of approached the subject head on. So within the time it's taken us to produce another show, there's actually been a revision to uh, the topic of slavery already. So what we'll do is we'll jump straight into it. The headings for these are basically the, the legality of slavery, you know, what happens in terms of uh, slaves, in terms of their commodity rules, you know, what happens as them as passengers, and finally, what particular events and missions are going to be available. So we'll start off with the uh, the legality of slavery. And Alan, I think as this is more fiction than anything else, maybe you'd be best place to start us off. Well, they've spent quite a lot of time talking about how slavery integrates into society. And there's been a, a few things in the, you know, the, the imperial casting of this by the fact that obviously imperials are, you know, unknown to, to integrate slaves within their, their direct society. I quite like the fact in the proposal, you have a difference between imperial and non-imperial slaves. I think that's great, because there's been a quite a lot of um, with the the integration of slaves into society and explanation of how slaves work in imperial society, there's been quite a lot of rationalising of how the slave's role fits within a, a you know a social system. And I kind of I kind of think that's plausible. I think that's okay. But I also think you know there's a darker side to this because this is about owning people. And ultimately, you know, the players who are coming to this game have 20th and 21st century uh, morality about these things. So they are always going to come to the game thinking that owning people is a little bit wrong. So I think what's interesting is to have this sort of idea of independent slaves as well. And that gives us plenty of opportunity from a fiction point of view to write about areas of space where slavery is not particularly nice and doesn't have any legal binding or anything else to it, which I think is is a good sort of element to what's there. And looking at the proposal here, let me just read some of the stuff out that they've actually put down. So uh, slaves may be traded at black markets in systems where slavery is illegal, but carrying dead strokes spoiled slaves, regardless of whether a commander killed them by a poor transport care or not, is considered as the crime of murder in most systems. The next part of the bits that... Uh, you know, made me slightly squeamish, which is some black markets will buy stasis canisters containing spoiled slaves as though they were fertilizer commodities. And some black markets will buy stasis canister containing dead slaves as though they were medical supplies. And finally, in extreme cases, read Shrug Insane, faction systems and systems where events such as famine have taken place may actually buy dead slaves as though they were meat commodities. I mean, that's just grim. I think it's awesome. I think it's, it's quite a realistic really? you know, sort of element. Yeah, no, I think I think it's very, um, you know, if you're in a, um, you know, and certainly I've, I've written a couple of scenes on this, you know, because we're, we're looking at a, a society where material, certainly when you're, you know, you're in space, the actual raw organics and the raw produce, the raw, you know, the raw materials that you have available to you have to be recycled and they have to be reused in ways that you can, you know, they have to, you have to have machines that can reconstitute these materials so that you can use them again. So one of the basic elements is obviously is water recycling in a spaceship. You need to, yeah, you know, you need to yeah, have yeah. that. And similarly, um, organic proteins and everything else, much as there is a, you know, we've got something obviously taboo and, and related in our, our current society uh, about the idea of people eating people. And, Stop. you know, there are, you know, there are infections Stop. and everything else that could be occurring. You've got to have something Stop. like this that will, uh, that will work. 
I don't even think it's anything to do with taboos. I think if people are in a crisis situation, they will probably eat anything. You know, as long as it's barbecued well enough with enough sauce. Well, there yeah, I mean, several... you just need to look uh, look recently and just think of how much horse meat you've eaten in the last six months uh, to realise that that's the case. I just hope that they've got a Soylent Green plant somewhere that you can go and visit. That'd be, you know, go and stock that. I mean, there are several, there are several historical pre- uh, precedents that are set here about, you know, soldiers being trapped in particular places and members of a patrol dying and, and having to, you know, them having no other food. You know, these things have happened. And I mean, if you are in a society where every component of your society can be reconstituted into something else via some kind of recycler, then, you know, it would be natural in that regard. You know, that kind of taboo would move away. I mean, I I was, you know, there's a scene I was writing um, the other day um, when I was looking at um, uh, a ship that was going a particularly long distance and they're trying to have more people than could naturally manage on that ship. And then the recycler broke down and essentially they they have to sort of pull some of the stuff out of the recycler. And it's about looking at what stuff that's in this recycler can actually be eaten because the recycler is broken. So which of the you know, which of the stuff that's running through the pipes is actually reconstituted and which of it isn't? So they have to go through and work out what they can what they can eat, which you know is is a particularly grim scene. But the point is is that that's part of that society, and I think that's important. And actually, it's part of our society because I mean I know obviously we wouldn't advocate eating dead human bodies directly. Um, but ultimately, human bodies are part of the nitrogen cycle. So they do eventually come back into yeah, the food yeah, supply. Well, absolutely. And all you're really doing is, you know, the technology is effectively shortcutting that process, isn't it? So, OK, well, maybe we'll move on to um, slaves as commodities then and uh, leave the, the slaves as fertilizer question behind. So non-imperial slaves are always transported in stasis canisters. Now, obviously, we talked about stasis canisters as part of the passenger topics. So stasis canisters, we know, induce comas and can additionally supply nutrients when housed in a life support cargo rack. When not housed in a life support cargo wrap, stasis containers occupants will reduce in quality over time. So they will start off as healthy. And if you don't look after them, they will go to ailing. And from ailing, they will go straight to dead. And from dead, they will go to spoiled. Now, the quality will affect the sale price and commodity type the canister will be sold as. So in other words, spoiled slaves cannot be sold as, say, medical supplies. I thought that was actually quite interesting and maybe makes you ask the question of whether or not you can get away with sort of saving a little bit of money if you were only doing like a, a short haul hop from one system to another or whether or not you need you have to spend a little bit more on your uh, your cargo system if you're doing a long haul flight um what do you guys think some brilliant kind of events can arise from this you know like for instance you got some slaves on board you're doing a run in between when you're deciding what to do with the slaves and your friend says to you oh the price for medical supplies in this system over there you know is 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 good at the moment so you actually consciously decide to go and do another run so that um you know your ailing slaves actually end up dead just so you can go and trade them in it's horrendously callous isn't it and it (laughs) it, it's what was quite interesting because i noticed a couple of posts on the forums that were complaining about the you know they were saying oh this is just an icky topic and i'm thinking no this you know this is part of the game if you've seen if you've played the game prior to the way in which it worked you know in in previous incarnations this is part and parcel of the game you define your moral stance 
of this based on, you know, it's one of the fundamental things that allows you to choose a particular faction because, it, of course, it's in the Alliance Charter that slavery is illegal. It's in um, the Federation, in all Federation systems apart from one, um, slavery is illegal. And in all Empire systems, slavery is perfectly fine and legal. So, you know, I, I, I think it's I think it's genius. I think it's also quite an interesting idea in terms of, you know, the health of your slaves, whether or not they could have a knock-on effect in terms of, you know, say you get into a scrap and during that uh, piece of combat, you know, you take a blow to the you know, the cargo section and it knocks out the life support for the slaves and you're thinking, well, you know, do I push on and just sell them as to what is, what sell them in whatever state they are when I get there or do I maybe divert to a nearer pirate base and uh, and try and offload them now before they go from being ailing to uh, to dead well the thing is there's been a lot of games lately that uh, you know the, the selling point has been that players are able to make moral decisions uh, and just from this alone you know you're seeing that they're taking that to a completely new level in, in that uh, you know players are able to experience that so much more than just a simple binary decision yeah absolutely and I agree and we'll talk a little bit more about the morality of it all when uh, we come on to the next section, which is uh, slaves and passengers. But before we do that, let me just quickly go over the, the fact that they've actually in this game, which is different to, uh, to previous ones, they've brought in uh, specific types of slaves which can be bought and sold. So you'll have uh, pleasure slaves. I think we can all imagine what they're for. Brute slaves and domestic slaves. And each of those will fetch a different price depending on um, you know, which particular system you're in. So, for example, uh, brute slaves are going to be worth more to industrial stroke extraction economies, whereas pleasure slaves are going to be you know, cheaper at, uh, at service economies. Um, I think this is, uh, this is quite an interesting way of expanding the, uh, the commodity market for slaves. So do you, what do you reckon? Do you reckon um, you know, splitting slaves into various different um, subsects is actually quite a good thing? I mean, it adds a little bit more to the whole um, commodity, doesn't it, in the fact that you have to choose the correct system or planet in which to offload these, uh, these items. It does. The, the, I think there's a fine line, and it'll be interesting to see how the trading of stuff actually works in the final game. We talked in the last podcast about mining and about how there was a suggestion that your mining might actually net, you know, specific individual minerals. So things like, you know, iron, gold, there were some of the gases in there. And there's kind of a fine line between saying, yes, it's really interesting to have different markets for different types of minerals, but I'm pretty sure that if you were able to ship one of every element in the periodic table, that that's just overload of, of trading types. And I don't think anybody would really enjoy, well, I think pretty sure there'd be a few people who, who really would, but I think the majority of gamers are not going to really enjoy a trading mechanic that's that complicated. And I think in the same way, the different slaves, it kind of nuances, you know, if you really want to get into the slave trading aspect of the game as like your this is your specific thing you do then obviously it's going to be nice to have different options and different strategic choices about who you sell and where but i think there is also a danger in splitting this very particular market into complicated areas you might just make it too unwieldy i'm hoping that there's a reason why they've done that you know and it's 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 not just for the sake of it like you said like having one of everything on the periodic table you know maybe there are going to be some factors like for instance the pleasure slaves you know they can sell for that much more where prostitution's legal say or something like that i think there has to be a yeah and if you've got a slave if you've got slaves who are kind of big brute kind of mining slaves there's no point taking them to a tourist planet 
it's just the level of nuance that you go into. I mean, because it says pleasure, brute, domestic, etc. How many more things are you going to put on that, etc.? Are you going to have like civil service slaves? <laughs> you know, slaves who are really good with numbers and get sold to accountancy planets. And, you know, if you get too specific with it, you just get bogged down in mechanics. I don't we have clanks for most of those uh, roles anyway? That's their word. You can't use it. <laughs> okay and uh before we move on from commodities just snuck in at the end here it says uh, npc escape pods are treated as stasis canisters now when i saw that i just literally put, you know, wrote down straight next to it scooping slaves so are we thinking that once we've destroyed an npc ship if there's a escape pod somewhere nearby we could scoot that with our trusty cargo scoop and then sell them as slaves well there's an interesting point about the stasis canisters because there is interesting crossover between the slaves and NPCs and passengers, because one of the things they were saying about the stasis containers is that if you have a passenger in a stasis container, there is nothing stopping you going and selling them on a slave market, and that that is a reason why some passengers may refuse to travel via stasis canister. Yeah, Um, absolutely, and that comes straight into our next topic, which is slaves and passengers. To me, it puts in mind, you know, the beginning of, uh, what's the uh, the fourth Alien movie, where the guy's got a cargo hold full of what were passengers – And he's obviously stolen them and is now selling them on as kind of mules to be used in this experiment. And it just reminds me of that. And I think it's interesting that you could take on board your ship, you know, a cargo hold full of backpackers and then go and sell them as, you know, whatever. But then it's complicated because you look at the stuff where you have different types of slaves, whether they're pleasure slaves or or brute slaves or whatever. Does that mean the game's going to have to have a mechanism where you take a look at your passengers and decide what kind of slave. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to go to a like a pleasure planet and end up trying to sell them as a prostitute, some big hairy docker. I think actually it would be quite interesting if that happened, um, not so much randomly, but um, you know, if you sort of press the button to turn passenger into slave, then uh, you're almost waiting for the computer to come back and tell you, congratulations, you have one brute and one pleasure slave. And it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. Or you have two pleasure slaves. It's like, yes, I'm in the money. I know exactly where I'm going to offload you to. But I mean, before we uh, go in any deeper into that one, it leads on quite nicely to the slaves and passenger section. So I mean, obviously trading in slaves affects your reputation. So if you were to take your passengers and then turn them into slaves that obviously has a massive effect on your reputation as a um, as a passenger carrier and likewise if you you know get into a scrap and you scoop up some stasis containers containing slaves and you want to do the humanitarian thing you can actually get um, fake ids and convert them into um, normal citizens so you can actually release them which will increase your humanitarian reputation unless of course you're trying to free an imperial slave now, imperial slaves might not actually want to be freed uh, they will take a, a general view of being freed as a, being a bad thing and could potentially put a revenge mission on your head imperial planets could actually uh, see that as an attempted murder charge against you if you try and free an imperial slave uh what do you guys think about this i mean would you want to be the the you know, the, the slave freer just quickly talking about you know the passenger ships and the slaves and, and it was mentioned obviously that escape pods can be scooped and then you can do whatever you want with them because escape pods are classed as um uh, stasis but here we now have a reason to attack passenger ships because you can just scoop them all up and then you've got lots of slaves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a, it's going to be a, <laughs> quite a challenge. I mean, we don't know much about passenger ships and the fact that um, are we expecting there to be escorts within Elite Dangerous? Do we think that these passenger liners are either going to be what heavily armed but slow or do we think they're actually going to be quite nimble 
um, and will have escort ships protecting them. I think they've been described as fast, so um, you know that's in their benefit. They will they will be armed, but not heavily. Hence, why they probably will need an escort. But as with all things, the more they want to make more money, and so they'll try and save costs by you know dropping a ship from the escort, you know only taking the one, or maybe even trying to get away with none. So um, I think it's good because it's going to drive a kind of arms race between the passengers and the and the uh, the slavers. I think the freeing slaves is very much a kind of I suppose, a role-playing choice for a player. I can't see that there's enough gameplay in coming across slaves and then taking them to free systems to make it a big gameplay feature. I think it's a personal choice as a player if you're trying to role-play a concept within the game of, you know, I am a libertarian, I am wanting to free, you know, bonded slaves from their masters, and that would be something you would choose to do. But I'm not sure how you would mechanize that in the game kind of score and feedback cycle it's actually fairly simple to mechanize because we've already been talking about the contact system and if you attach triggers to to commodities or you attach triggers to slaves if you start freeing them you know then you can automatically attract the attention of a particular organization so it would enable you to attract a contact and thereby accrue more missions to to free people and put them on a colony that that is crying out for, for extra population no, definitely. I can't remember who it was, but a representative of FD definitely came on and said that there are going to be interested parties who, are, you know, who, who really want to see slaves freed, even imperial slaves. So there's, there's going to be missions in there, possibly, or at least some kind of reward system where you, know, you turn them over and you know, you're going to increase your standing with, with certain factions. Yeah, definitely. If you look at the, the, you know, the final bit of this um, proposal, and that's the one of events and missions, it said that trading and dealing in the slave trade opens up lots of interesting possibilities. So you've got seeing operations when selling slaves to particular contacts so you never know if you're actually going to be selling it to you know, pretty much like you did in Frontier. You know, when you're selling your slaves to uh, to your contacts, you know, could they actually be uh, a member of the authorities in disguise? Revenge missions from disgruntled associates. You know, you've got the potential of maybe picking up missions that have Imperial slave defectors on it. And uh, the one that I really like, which is betraying important passengers for a third party's benefit. So take Alan's example where you're ferrying that you know, high-ranking Imperial official yeah, how cool would it be if you decided actually, no, I'm going to take you, I'm going to lock your passenger cabin and I'm going to try and get you across two systems and uh, you know, jettison you out so you can be collected and taken as a slave you know, by a member of the, the Federation or the Imperial or someone for political gain. I think that just opens up such a great um, story element uh, aspect for the game. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I think there are a multitude of ways in which they can make this work uh, in terms of it opening up story mechanics uh, and mission mechanics. So, so yeah, uh, slavery um, looks like it's well thought through. Our own moral choices and our own moral perception on whether we're going to deal in slaves or not, I guess people will find out when we get closer to the game, won't they? Definitely. And uh, it's one of the things that <laughs> was mentioned in this revision is the fact that Sandro says it's worth noting that there have been some very interesting tangent concepts in this topic. Whilst they aren't appropriate for indulging it here within ddf uh, i'm sure we will be scrutinizing these threads at various points in the future and he's got brackets slave crews i'm looking at you okay well i have a feeling that the topic of slavery might be one that we keep on revisiting until the game comes out so we'll leave it there for the time being and we will move on to our community corner section you've flown ships at max speed you've felt the power of the 30 megawatt mining laser You've experienced the efficiency of the MB4 mining machine. Wow. 
But it leaves every hardcore miner with just one question. Why can't I get a shave that's that fast, close and efficient? Introducing the Saracen MB5 Shaving Drone. It's so smooth. Combining the power of a mining laser with the convenience of a drone. It's like every hair is targeted by a fighter and destroyed. Saracen's patented shaving drone attaches to your face at the start of the day. Leave it to do its work, and when you come back to check, your face is shaved. He's so smooth. It's like I'm mining my face. The Saracen MB5 Shaving Drone. Now I feel manly. Saracen Shaving. Making shaving an unnecessary adventure. And we're back for Community Corner. And this week in Community Corner, we're actually going to have the Meet the Team section because we figure the development team are actually part of the community too. So this week's interview is with graphics programmer Ben Parry. He is the lead for the render programming team on Elite Dangerous. Uh, Ben's one of the people responsible for innovating the underlying render technology behind Elite Dangerous so that every model, material, effect or light source is as impactful as it can be without being resource hungry. Now, I must admit, I've read through this and I've picked out a few things that I found were quite tantalizing, but maybe, John, you can maybe give us a bit more insight into what exactly a rendering programming team actually does. Well, to be fair, I think it's slightly out of my area of expertise. Some of the terms I understood and some of them I you know, I wasn't uh, too on board with. But um, I, I think the idea with a graphics programmer is you kind of specialize a bit more in some of the graphics theory, which includes things like 3D, so polygons and lighting and and things like that and how to actually render 3D objects in a convincing manner whilst at the same time trying to work out how much processor cycles or sorry GPU cycles that you're going to use to to render this stuff given that for any given moment there might be 32 ships or whatever on screen at the same time uh, and they're all going to have loads of polygons stuff like that so it's a technical job by the looks of it and you know he talks about that in depth he he uses a couple of the buzzwords people can go and wikipedia them if you want um, as as a lot of people who commented on it initially um, did go and do. I, I like the fact that uh, some of my questions made and made their way into there, but uh, one of them was obviously the lure debate. Now, as the game's moved on, what's going on with the user interface and, and whether there's going to be kind of scope for things like uh, third-party plugins is it's still just completely unknown. So unfortunately, his answer that he's sitting on the fence about it didn't really uh, give us any insight into that, unfortunately. No, I completely agree but I did chuckle to myself when I when I saw the lure debate uh, suddenly appearing in one of these interviews but quite nicely Ashley's tried to uh, tried to help us out here by um, asking Ben what exactly it is that the rendering programming team do and Ben's come back and said that uh, here's a few examples of what the, the team's working on so uh, one of the members Tom is writing a component that allows the game code to set colors thickness and a bunch of other properties for rendering laser beams as well as adding shaders to make them flash and sizzle quite like the idea of having sizzling lasers but the one that really gets me quite excited is uh, what les is supposedly working on which is writing the decal renderer that will make splat burn marks glowing burn marks from lasers and possibly custom positioning paintwork details over all the outside of anything that we want so you know if you make a, a nice decal or obviously the decals that we've all paid for as part of our reward pledges les is obviously working on those uh, and making them appear in game so i quite like the idea that if you shot someone with a laser not only will it give you a sort of a splat burn mark but it will also glow hot as well uh, i don't think i've seen that in any other game that i've played so far or potentially it could burn your decal into the side of the opponent's ship a bit like zorro <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, there's some pretty fancy laser work going on there. <laughs> I have to say, a fair amount of this, I mean, I, I know a little bit about rendering in that, uh, you know, I, I obviously I've got some rendering to do for some of the um, uh, the artwork that I'm producing for, for Labour Revolution, but a lot of this was, was pretty much above my head. I did look through his desk and see that he's got his monitor propped up on a book. It appears that the, the models from the cake are not doing the rounds anymore because they've not made it to, to his desk, or Ben is not important enough to uh, you know to have models uh, from the cake. And um, yeah, it, it appears that the Xbox controller is a feature for pretty much everybody. So I'm assuming that's the, the weapon of choice to uh, to play Elite Dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And if we're going to do our wonderful uh, weekly topic of what's on your desk, then uh, looking around, you can see if you zoom in that he seems to be, and again, it's just what you can kind of make out, he's, he seems to be working on the uh, the federal cruiser ship there as well, on his main monitor. He's also mentioned in his interview that he's an iWar fan, Foz, so you are Wait, probably going to have to make sure your episode of Retro Lave is up to scratch when you're reviewing it, won't you? Yeah, so we'll mention that as well in the uh, in the what's coming next, but yes, the next episode of Retro Lave we'll actually be covering the first independence war you guys are very excited about going through that especially because most people have only played independence war 2 and nobody's actually played the first one so it'll be quite interesting to see just how good it is well ben okay. was a modder for i war one so uh, which he said in the interview so i i would assume he'll be tuning in and he'll be listening intently to how disappointed you all are at how old the game is <laughs> no i wouldn't want to prejudge the episode we've only played it for five minutes so far but uh, yes i'm sure it'd be i'm sure there'll be lots of things to uh, to say in its favour. Okay, so if you're interested in the uh, the graphics programming job and the Ben Parry interview, then obviously head over to the Elite Dangerous forums and check it out now. That's going to lead us straight on to the writer's section. Alan, what's been going on this week? Well, we've started chiming off a little bit from the fiction diary Michael mentioned and discussing some of the, the mythology of the game, particularly how the mythology relates to the books and how it will sort of relate across the different forms that are coming out. So, for example, if if I put something in my book that mentions a particular mysterious thing, then maybe that might feature in the game, but also it might feature in one of the other books as a as a sort of pass away reference. So we've we've been going through a few of those things, and um, we got to the stage. It's been quite fascinating, really, because we got to the stage where we've started sharing extracts of you know of drafts of particular sections so that we can kind of tweak them a little bit to include a little teaser of other people's plots which i think is really cool so it's going to provide something that that really makes the the universe feel very knitted together which is really interesting and certainly on the scale that the books are working on the elite universe has never really had that before so i think it'd be very interesting and similarly uh, we've we've had the announcement from michael as i mentioned before that he's going to be looking to work with each of us on particular aspects of our story so that you're seeing what things can be realized in game which will be fun and yeah so we've we've had a few more sections of information released on backstory and and campaign elements that we can we can kind of make use of and we're still waiting for the usual suspects so you know it's pretty much business and uh, and picked up a little bit in terms of discussion ideas great stuff he was a space pirate with quirky habits. Hi. Most people find me quirky. I don't need him from the people. She was a busy space liner captain with no time for love. I've got 50 passengers to take on a space whale watching tour. I don't have time for dating. But when fate throws them together, the result is pretty inevitable. You're like no man I've ever met. Forget my job, ship and crew. Where should we go for a date? It better not be a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> From Singing and Dreams Entertainments comes a new total immersion experience. 
It was incredible. I just put on the headset and it's like I was there in the story. Using Signia and Dreams' patented Dreamware Immersion headsets, you'll feel the love. It was like I could feel everything that plucky ship captain was feeling. You'll feel the passion. Let's just say, when they got off, I got off. You'll feel everything. Did you enjoy your meal? Ooh, I don't think I should have had that raw seafood. Signian Dream Entertainments and Dreamware headsets, bringing you closer to the adventure. Signian Dream Entertainments is a division of Signian Dream Military Educational Software. Combat training software also available. Please be aware that improper use of the Dreamware headset may lead to psychosis, time loss, memory impairment and hallucination. Okay, and moving on from the Writers Forum into the more general forum, uh, John, I think you've been <laughs> responsible for one of the most interesting things that's popped up in the forum at the moment, and that is the question of how dangerous will the universe be? Do you want to take us through this? Yeah, just quickly, uh, what I was trying to ask was, um, you know, in terms of other games, and I'm thinking EVE, um, and I haven't played it for any massive amount of time, but what I do know is that um, when you sign up to play EVE, you sign up to an entire philosophy, you know, and it's this kind of libertarian, you know, everyone's out to look after yourself, you know, individuals have rights, but that right seems to extend to, you know, scamming other people in forums and things like that. And basically their attitude is if you're stupid enough to fall for it, then you, you deserve to be parted with your money. And I was just wondering, given that, um, you know, Elite Dangerous is going to be based in a very uh, dangerous universe, just like Eve, I was wondering if that kind of, you know, similar ethos is going to be carried across. Now, they didn't quite answer my question in terms of, you know, scamming in forums and, you know, the meta game, but they did actually give us some information about the game that I don't think we've, we've had already. Uh, the first one is scamming and they basically said yes there's going to be scamming in game there's going to be the ability to hide what's in canisters you can put the wrong label on them which all of a sudden opens up the game to just makes it just adds that extra level of complexity especially when dealing with with human characters which i think is fantastic you know uh, it's it's adding that extra level of skill to the game and also they were talking they talked about griefing uh, another nebulous word but they look at it that um, there's going to be what they call bad guys in the game uh, they've even included it in so much that piracy and smuggling is possible but and this was the important bit they fully support psychopathic behavior the idea that you just see a ship, you want to go and kill, you know, you want to go and shoot it, go and shoot it, rather than trying to force people to have sound reasoning for everything that they do. Which was very interesting because it kind of forces some players that maybe don't like to engage in, in, in combat with other players, it forces them to have to escape. They're not going to build into the game some kind of a mechanism where people can just ex- exclude themselves from player to player combat or PvP. It's actually saying, well, first of all, someone's going to try it on with you and then you're going to have to escape, which I think makes sense in terms of the elite universe. It's a dangerous place. If you're going to be in dangerous areas, locations, um, you should expect to be attacked uh, by NPCs and other players. So again, that was more good news. And then they just went on to talk about how, you know, they're trying to balance it so that uh, people that don't want you know, they don't want to ruin the game for anybody, really. They're trying their best, um, and they're trying to give people the options to to uh, to get away and, and avoid some of the stuff they might not be interested in. Uh, and that was about it, really. The, again, they're kind of really trying to sell the idea of groups to players as a kind of solution to playing the game that you want to play. Uh, and that's what I took away from it, really. Yeah, I mean, looking at it, uh, 
Yeah, some of the things that I, I picked up on was the fact that uh, they didn't. Yeah, they're they're trying to anticipate that uh, you know no player should be able to do anything that you wouldn't expect an NPC player to do. You know, so in terms of griefing and bad guys and everything else, you know, there's, there's nothing saying that um, you know exactly the same player, uh, exactly the same behaviour won't be you know, apparent in the the NPC side of things. At what point do you see it in being important that frontier development actually you know weighed into not the argument but sort of the in-game management of it and we've got a question in here from uh, exaga who asks you know at what point should frontier if ever step in and deal with player activity well if the design is correct then they shouldn't need to because the idea is that the you know that the calibration of police forces and reputation and everything else eventually if you are a, a you know a, a complete hothead gun that is going to shoot down everybody you end up in the margins and you end up in you know in sort of fringe space and by being there there is less opportunity for people to interact with you so and if you come back into the core systems then people chase you so you create your own you know sort of environment you create your own um, your own consequence. It's, it's hard to know really though where griefing begins because I think I think you're right. I think there's a lot of design in there which allows for you know people to lose in an interesting kind of gameful way. But if you think about a, I mean, you say you enjoy losing, but if you think about a first-person shooter, there are there have been times where you play like a first-person shooter and to lose and get shot by somebody is the culmination of a kind of a duel over a few minutes that's kind of run around and that is good but on the flip side where it goes into griefing is if you're dead and you try and respawn and someone is sitting on your spawn point and every time you appear they kill you and you respawn they kill you that's i don't see anybody getting any enjoyment out of that and if you were to look at it from a game mechanic, you'd say, you know, when you when you'd say someone's complaining about griefing, what are you complaining about? And you're saying, oh, someone on the opposing team shot me. That's the game. No, no, no. But they shot me in a way which was camping on my spawn point and I never actually got the chance to get into the game and do anything. Then it becomes griefing. And they're not actually doing anything different that is in other than what is in the core experience of the game. You are supposed to shoot the other team. But there's a kind of behaviour that then becomes antisocial and stops one of those two parties having a good time playing. And it's hard to predict, I think, with a game like Elite, where those sorts of behaviours are going to creep in. And I think that's where later down the line, you know, rules might change. It just so happens that today I, I actually did a blog post about this. And the two points you mentioned there kind of go hand in hand. Because we're talking about, you know, PvP and we're talking about this, this concept of griefing or bullying or things like that. Now, the question from Foz was that what should Frontier do about, you know, this kind of antisocial behavior, players that are spoiling it for other players. And, and what was coming out a lot of the conversations was it was always looking at PvP and how that was a problem. Um, for, for people and that there, there were nasty people out there that were spoiling the game through pvp but um my thoughts on it were that there's, there's too much focus on pvp when really the the true psychopaths the people out there who are bullying people and ruining the game experience they have so many different ways to do it that even if you took pvp out of the game tomorrow there's still gonna be a massive scope for bullying within the game whether it be via you know like voice or text communications, or whether it's via you know some other kind of game action that could be performed that affects another player. So 
I think what happens is if people want to talk about making the game experience you know, good for everybody, nobody's feeling that the game's been ruined, then you need more of a, a top-down approach to how people, you know, how they can manage, manage bullying or antisocial behavior within the game. And it shouldn't just be focused on PvP all the time, because I think that they're actually two different concepts. And what's happening is that instead of a uh, discussion about how PvP as a mechanic can be made good so that people who want to engage in it will have the best possible experience, it always gets derailed by people who think that PvP is almost the necessary fact. You know, that is the cause for um, bullying when it's actually just one kind of facet of it. Yeah, I completely agree with that, John. I think as well, you can already see that Frontier have built in certain mechanics to make the the conflict experience, you know, and I'll just I'll just put it like that, you know, the the idea of fighting other players uh, in a, a spaceship dogfight. Uh, they've already put things in place to to try and structure that. They've already put them in place to stop uh, respawn camping. They've already put things in place to empower people to go after serial offenders. Um, you know, based on reputation and bounties and things like that. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I trust all that, you know, in, in itself. Similarly, when you look at some of the other sort of aspects of play that um, players can affect, where we're talking about NPC contacts and when we're talking about trades and, and anything else, there are going to be evolving universe parameters that players can affect. And if you can pull enough players together to do something, to do something in particular, to make something happen you will change things. So that in itself, if you've got, you know, 20 players deciding that they're, you know, they're all going to be part of one particular faction, and what you do is you, you know, you pull in 40 players and you you trade and trade and trade until that faction is, you know, is is in trouble. Um that's that's PVP, you know, that's still PVP. You might never know it happened because players did it, but it's still PVP. And um, you know, that stuff is still there. So, you know, I, I would guess I, I'm agreeing with you in terms of it needs to be looked at holistically. And I do think that Frontier are looking at holistically at the types of player interaction that are available. One of the ones, though, that is the, you know, the common one that actually is the thing that people are, are concerned about, generally verbal abuse and written abuse. And it's not really about whether they get shot down or not. It's actually about what people type what they write or what they say, isn't it? While they shoot them down, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, you just raised another interesting topic there, actually, Alan, about how people bandy together. Because one of the things we have noticed starting to happen on the forums is people starting to set up their own groups, which, considering that we're six months away from any sort of potential launch of the game, do you think it's a bit premature that people are trying to organise their own groups or guilds or factions? Well, it's kind of it's a natural reaction because they're you know they're seeing people on the forums who are as committed as they are, and it's like minded, and you create a community and so on and so forth. Um, I think it is a bit early. I think you know when we get into alpha and when we get into beta, then we'll start to get some idea of what the gameplay is like. And I think at that point, you can kind of start talking to people and saying, okay, you know, maybe you know if you're playing this and I'm playing this, then that might fit together and so on and so forth. What I think we could do is. Maybe some of those folk want to, you know, want to advertise about their groups on uh, on the podcast, but not yet. Three months, maybe. You know, come come revisit the group idea in three months. I, I did like though today they um, someone announced they were going to create a solo group. That was very good. <laughs> no no interaction at all, and you know, and the minute that you posted on the thread, you were banned from the group. Yeah, great idea. Yeah. 
A little bit of a piss take, but, you know, great idea. Okay, well, uh, talking about maybe being slightly premature, this one actually links in quite nicely with um, with the fact that we've had Ben Parry talking about rendering engines and stuff like that. There's been quite a lot of interest and quite a lot of um, discussion around what sort of PC you're going to need in order to run this game. And obviously Ben was saying in his interview that you know, part of his role is trying to make sure that uh, you know, it scales nicely and that you know, as many PCs as possible can actually uh, run Elite Dangerous when it's launched. Um, so this question came in from Bingo Brewster, which said, um, I'm confident that my PC with its i5 quad processor and 8 gigabytes of RAM could handle a mere game until I started playing the open beta of World of Warplanes. Performance was awful at 6 frames per second until I turned the graphics down to the lowest settings. Now FPS is mid-30s and seems fine. Does this mean that I should not be complacent about the performance of my PC with regards to Elite Dangerous? What do you reckon, guys? I mean, are we all going to have to start putting money away in our piggy banks and make sure that we've got uh, whatever the equivalent of a Cray supercomputer is to to run Elite Dangerous? Or do we have confidence in the fact that they're going to try and make this game available for as many you know, various systems as possible? The confusion is what is what does and always has put me off pc gaming to be honest as a gamer i mean i'm keen to play elite dangerous and i will be i mean i currently don't have a pc that really plays you know any games that that have been out in the last few years Um, and i'm keen to play elite dangerous and i have been meaning to get a new pc for some time but i think one of the things i personally find as a gamer enormous irritation about waiting for a pc game is just not knowing what's going to run it if you say to me you know, this game's going to come out, it's going to be, you know, PlayStation 4 and Xbox One only. You know that you're going to go into a shop, there's going to be a thing in a box, you buy it and take it home, and it will work. And if it doesn't work, you take it back to the shop, because it's their problem. And I think with PCs, there is this thing of, what do I buy? What do I need? What will run it? What kind of experience am I going to have? Um, And it's kind of, you know, we've said before, it's down to you as a buyer. Uh, And if you buy a PC that you have a bad gaming experience on, it's your fault as a consumer. And I think I think it's very wrong and very damaging for gaming. And it'd be nice to see sort of a set of standard specs agreed on and kind of targeted. I think the problem is that by, by its nature, you know, PCs are always bleeding edge. They're always looking to put the, the bigger and the better specs in, probably because over the last few decades, because it's so, everything's made of components, everything's interchangeable. It is no problem that if a new faster processor or graphics card comes out, that it is already compatible with whatever is bleeding edge and so you just got this constant shift forward and you know in a way that's what drives the consoles as well you know in the end you know the consoles always adopt whatever is bleeding edge into whatever the the, the next generation is as far as uh bingo brewster's experience um of world of warplanes um it is still in beta so i wouldn't be too upset that you got a poor frame rate you know just in a beta there may be an issue i mean your graphics card might not be supported properly so it might be falling back on some other form of rendering there could be quite a few reasons why it's performing badly apart from obviously you know you got a you got a poor system um all i know is i will be buying a new machine especially for elite dangerous and it'll have to be quad core i7 at a minimum but that's just me spin it on its head then how much money are you putting aside to get that pc that you think you'll be uh, happy to run elite dangerous on 1200 quid okay so you are literally going for you know the very sort of top end gaming pc that you can get <laughs> well it's actually gonna be a laptop uh, oh, yeah, interesting. I, 
yeah, I don't, I, I don't have space for a PC. I use laptops, so it'll, be, it'll probably be, you know, it won't be the most powerful laptop, but it'll be kind of getting there. Interesting. Okay, well, that'll answer that question until we get asked that question again, um, which I'm sure we're going to as we get closer to uh, alpha, beta, and then launch. What was Joseph Randall Carrick's? Uh, his was he wants the orange sidewinder in the game. Have you guys spotted the section in the reputation doc on the DDF archive titled Criminality under the Reputation Type section? Mentions one way of reducing your criminality reputation is to do atonement missions. Is that the sound of an orange sidewinder readying its rubbish scoop? <laughs> <laughs> well joseph yes i'm sure everybody at the lave radio crew would love to uh to get this orange sidewinder out into the real league dangerous universe so uh yes maybe uh maybe there is a little bit of a, a hint there but uh as i say all we can do is continue marketing the orange sidewinder and uh i hope that the campaign gets a little bit of traction as the uh as the launch date gets nearer and um, don't forget don't forget rubbish tipping in slough we need to keep marketing the idea of everyone dumping their rubbish in slough. Well remembered, Alan, yes. We were looking for other suggestions as well. We haven't had any. No, no. No, slough seems to be the front runner. I think everyone's just decided it's slough. So, sorry, Kate. <laughs> okay, so moving on from rubbish dumping in slough, that leads us quite nicely, actually, into another question that we've got from Charlie Danby. And he asks... What would you like to see most in the game that has absolutely no chance of making it in there? Well, obviously, rubbish dumping in uh, Slough is uh, top of our list. And if we could do it in an orange sidewinder, then I think that would make it, uh, it would certainly make me very, very happy. What about the rest of you guys? I'm thinking you're selling yourself short here, Foz. Surely you want to see Darth Maul in, <laughs> uh, in, you know, in a Cobra Mark III chasing Starbuck through, uh, through the lab system, don't you? No, he says little. He says little or no chance. I'm not talking about impossibility. <laughs> You're thinking that the uh, the IP rights might be an issue, are you? Just slightly, yeah. <laughs> In terms of stuff that won't make it, I think probably some elements of immersive play with regards to NPCs. You know, I'd kind of quite like to see some very more detailed systems whereby we we, we look at. Uh, factions having wars on planets and you you kind of flying over the top of them and you know and seeing seeing the sort of the ground fighting conflicts going on over the planet surface seeing bodies disappearing into space as uh, as missiles strike a, an escort ship and uh, you know and, and and everything sort of starts to, to fall to pieces and all the lifeboats start coming out um, hearing the the comm chatter that um, you know that, that a ship's going down um, and listening to you know to the NPCs trying to desperately you know manage their alert klaxons and everything else, being able to run a ship with four or five different friends and having them all man the fighters and you man the uh, uh, the main ship, we know that <laughs> some of that will happen, but not you know not perhaps as much as uh, uh, as it could be. I don't know, setting up your own bases, you know, all sorts really. Yeah, I'd like to see um, kind of, you know, weird non-core gameplay stuff creeping in. We talked previously when we were talking about, you know, fictional board games and things that people might play in Elite. I'd love the game to be a hub where even if you weren't going to connect in and fly your ship, that you could just hang around in like the bar on a space station with your mates playing some card game or or even like when you're when you're actually in your ship you know this discussion we had about having npcs as passengers wandering around your craft challenge them to a game of chess challenge them to a game of blackjack or they Um, they walk in front of the view screen you know do you mind if i sit here yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) that'd be that'd just be brilliant i mean things like 
you do a turn and they're in mag boots, so they, you know, <laughs> they're stuck to the floor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that kind of crazy stuff I'd love to see. Just, you know, because there are so many games that I've played, you know, when I've played with friends regularly, sometimes you end up joining multiplayer just to use it as a kind of glorified chat room. And like I said, I just, I just love there to be stuff that you can log into the game and just fill your time with non-flying activities. That that would be my kind of hilarious, bizarre thing. To include. Oh, and oh, and, and and continuous live radio broadcast. Clearly, yeah, obviously. Sorry, John. I'd just settle for any live radio broadcast if we're going for the <laughs> no chance of making it into the game. You kind of hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I would like to see some of those kind of GTA aspects that you can just play the game to mess around and not necessarily go and and you know follow like you know, missions and things like that. I think you're going to be able to do that anyway because that's what exploration's about, really. But uh, it would be kind of fun if, if there could be some kind of, like, exploration with buddies where you, I don't know, you can get up to all sorts of stuff. But I think they've done very well in terms of, you know, things like slavery and smuggling. You know, they've gone really in-depth with some of it. But for me, I would really love it if the game was that much more darker, um, that they kind of t- took on board the demographic the type of people who've backed it and who's actually going to be playing it and the, the game could be quite adult so that uh, you know when it came to missions and things like that they didn't have to play safe with you know all of the language and all of the content you know so for instance hey you know if there is a floating brothel why not go visit it you know if 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 you're going to push the boat out like that i mean that'd be cool are you suggesting that we have... I just sound like a perv now, don't I? <laughs> I was going to say. Sorry, it's just as the first thing that popped to my yeah. mind, you know. But, go, uh, go you know, there's a lot of... Go slightly darker or go slightly sexual, you know. <laughs> no, no. What a... But what I meant was that um, even though it's, you know, sorry, hundreds of years in the future, um, you know, the human race is still pretty basic. Um, you know, we are still as, you know, the technology's just moved on, but we're all going to have the same urges. We're all going to have the same problems in the future with crime um and things like that and i'd like to see that explored you know quite well okay so you're what you're basically saying is that you want the uh, the equivalent of the what was it, the hot coffee in grand theft auto you would like to have that revisited in early dangerous is that what you're saying I've, i think i mentioned hot coffee on the forums when somebody mentioned the floating brothel but you know i i just think it's nice to have an adult game i'm not saying that it needs to be gratuitous you know or over the top um, you know, just to get a rating or anything like that. But I would just like the exploration of adult themes in the future because I find that things like, uh, you know, Star Trek and, uh, you know, a lot of other sci-fi is it's, it's, it's kind of clinical and kind of sanitized, sorry. Well, I'm, that, uh, make- I, I'm, I'm playing um, Bioshock at the moment, which um, I've never played before. And uh, so it's it's an incredible experience for me, and that I'm going to go through all three games. I'd hope in uh, you know through the, the the process, but there are some incredible explorations of of sanity and insanity within that game. And you know, if you've got people who are out there in space for years and years and years, that's quite something to explore. And I think that would be quite cool. In fact, doesn't that form the basis of one of the short stories in the Elite Anthology? Oh, I think about it. Yeah, I think it does. I think uh, you know you're going to see some explorations of that in the fiction. As to whether you'll see some explorations of that in the game, we've not had much, you know, considered and touched upon in relation to it. So I don't know. 
maybe now we're starting to stray into things we'd like to see that aren't weird and wacky and are actually things that you know potentially we could see (laughs) okay so maybe maybe we get it back on track then and think that uh, maybe john stabler would like some what some turtle wax for your ship john or yeah, maybe some specialist RAC ships to help you out when your explorer ship breaks down. Well, yeah, I mean, on the forums today in the open, um, uh, the, the open thread on on the DDF, I said, wouldn't it be cool to have like a water cannon on your ship? You know, once they bring out the planetary expansion, you can go and put fires out, and then you know, uh, apart from that, you could help you know wash and wax ships. <laughs> but um, <laughs> someone pointed out that um, you know water in space has a lot of issues. <laughs> which obviously is true. But, um, yeah, a water cannon, why not? Or a space bike. <laughs> I think I'd like, to, I'd like to echo Chris's point in relation to the, you know, the socialising and the bars and the aspects of, uh, of that. I mean, they have said, and, I mean, it has been a repeated request to have a simulator in some of the, the stations, and they've, they've kind of said that's not included in the current design proposal, which is a shame. I'd really like a simulator in the station so you can kind of try different ships and also, if you've got a bit of a, a beef with somebody and you want to settle it without losing anything, you could, you know, go head to head on the simulator. I think that, you know, I think that could be a good way of of lancing, you know, some of the the issues that some people have with um, with griefing and what have you as well. You can, you know, there's a place then for for that, or you can make it serious and go out there and you know and properly, you know, sort of go at each other. But I like those ideas. You know, we've had these submissions of mini games and what have you you know i've put a few things forward i don't think we're going to use them but you know i mean we can see you know um i've suggested three-dimensional chess and uh uh different types of card game but you know see what happens won't we okay leaving the uh the probably not going to happen to the definitely will happen uh a final question comes in from martin and he's asking about the film of the late revolution so <laughs> I think we might as well just hand this straight one back. Uh, hand this straight back over to you, Alan. Tricky one, really. In that, um, and I've I've posted this to my Kickstarter people. It's been a tough summer. In that, I planned to do um, some production on this during August and haven't been able to uh, for a variety of reasons. Not because I haven't been working hard on the project, because I've you know I've completed the music and I'm getting there uh, to you know almost completed the draft of the book. But it's just been difficult in that um, it's been difficult to arrange some of the logistics and some of the, the administration of it, because ultimately I, I didn't really want to direct the film. What I wanted to do is bring somebody else in to direct the film and then you know kind of sit on it and go right okay well this works and this doesn't work and this this is the way this fits into the game and this is the way this fits into my story and so on and that's kind of not really taken off very well in that um it's looking increasingly likely i'm going to have to be more hands-on but there's still plenty of time and i'm a lot more encouraged in the fact that i've done more writing than i anticipated uh you know i've done more writing now than i anticipated to be at prior to the summer so you know, I kind of think there's a positive and a negative, but we're going to have to see, you know, what we what we pull together. So, you know, I'm quite open and honest about the, the things that are good and the things that are, uh, you know, developed and the things that are perhaps not so developed at this stage with uh, with the project. And that's where we are. So, you know, um, watch this space. I've still got some time. So, you know, hopefully we'll get it sorted out. So it should be OK. Okay, and following on from an interview that we had in a previous episode with Drew and his children, we've got James Vigor, age 16, who is going to talk to us a bit about his age group and their experience with the Elite franchise. Hello, Elite community. I'm James, but I'm known on the forums as One Vigor. 
and I'm here with a friend of mine. Uh, I am Starko. I think I'm on farms as Starko 1968, but I'm Tom. So I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions about games and Elite. So how did you find out about Elite, and what are your thoughts on the new game so far? I had no idea about any of the games before you mentioned them. So you're very, very new to the franchise, I'm then? incredibly new. And I imagine probably most of our demographic will be as well. From what you do know about Elite Dangerous so far, what are your current thoughts on the development? I think, done properly, which so far it looks like it is, it could be an incredibly interesting game. What is it that makes it seem interesting? There's the story and lore. Another one of my absolute favourite games ever is the Mass Effect series. I really found the lore interesting and the story behind it. What features do you think would stand out in Elite that would make it fun and enjoyable for you to play? I think ship management system would be quite an interesting thing for me. So being able to just customise your ship to the largest extent? Yeah, customise your ship to make the ship how you want it to be. So what we've seen so far is that there's going to be a large number of playable ships, like the Cobra, the Sidewinder, the Anaconda. We don't know to what degree you can customise them. You'll be able to name them, we know that, and we know that you'll be able to change the appearance of them to a certain extent. I know Fozzer definitely wants to spray his Sidewinder orange. Another thing I think I personally would like would be making tactical decisions. Tactical decisions. So is that in terms of how you would go about defeating an enemy? Yeah, really basic terms. In FTL, you have to make decisions based on what you know and what crew members and equipment you have. Something that would be quite interesting to have would be a decision-making system like that. Because in FTL, you have to decide which of the enemy systems you want to take down, whether you want to stop them from being able to bring shields up, or whether you want to take out their life support. We already know that there's going to be different levels of scanning equipment. So are we thinking like if you've got a really low-level scanner, then you're basically just able to see barely further than their hull? Yeah, low-level scanners should have incredibly basic tactical data that isn't really that helpful. You can almost couple this, actually, with the customization thing you were talking about before, because each ship wouldn't be laid out in exactly the same way. So you'd have to scan each ship that you come across to be able to find where their different systems are. As you rank up in scanners, instead of just saying that things are there, it should give you an indication of how they're being used and where they're located. So, just to wrap this up now, do you think other people in our generation, the Twitch generation, would agree with what you've said? And if if not, what what do you think other people would be looking at? I can say that my generation and maybe a couple years ahead, I think those sort of people, sort of as you put it, Twitch generation, are more interested in competitive gameplay. They're not interested in story or things like that. You'll be pleased to know that Elite does have some nice anti-griefing measures in place. I'm, I'm glad to hear about these measures, and I think they're actually a very... I think they're a very good idea. I think it's a very clever way of doing it. They're in place to protect people who are new to the game, like me, from being completely destroyed by people who put hours into the game and just want to get a cheap laugh. I think they're a very clever way of dealing with annoying and serious problems. Well, I think that's going to about do it. Thank you very much, Tom, for taking the time to answer these questions. That's great. Massive thank you to uh, to James, one biker on the forums for uh, for doing that for us. And also a massive congratulations to James on his excellent GCSE results. Okay, uh, just quickly, a final call for the second technician script competition. Again, just a reminder, this is a competition to win a signed 
uh, LaveCon poster uh, signed by all the development crew at Frontier Development at Cambridge, including Michael Brooks and David Braben. Uh, send in your most wittiest, most grimmest, most um, sadistic uh, second technician script, audio script into us at info at laveradio.com and we will announce the winners of that competition uh, probably on the next episode. And finally, for Community Corner, we spoke last episode about the idea of getting those pieces of music that have been inspired by the Elite franchise together into some form of uh, social group. And Alan, I think you have an update on this one? Yeah, we pulled together a group on SoundCloud, got together the active music composers who were on the forums to contribute some of their pieces in there. So you've got stuff done by me, you've got stuff done by James Treacher, you've got PA Groove, you've also got uh, some stuff done by our good old friends, Two Quiet Sons. So yeah, we're all in the uh, in this little group together where you can explore uh, bits and pieces of our music uh, and kind of see it. And hopefully we can get more people in. We'd, we'd really like to try and get anybody that's interested in composing things that are either inspired by Elite or their sort of remixes of elite themes like you know the wonderful uh, frontier theme done by by jamie and kind of get it all together so that you know there's a real package of things that people can explore and uh, and enjoy while they wait for the game brilliant okay well feedback this week we've done something slightly different actually obviously we can only see the feedback that comes in on itunes from uh, from obviously the uk edition of itunes but uh, we went on a magical mystery tour we uh, started messing around with the location settings with our itunes software and uh, we We've actually managed to get some some reviews from uh, different countries around the world. So uh, a big thank you in the USA to start off with from uh, Zefsi, Dr. Wookie, Commander Slick, and Dr. Tewilaka. And from Germany, we have feedback from Missing Peace and Matthew Benson. Finally, from Holland, we have feedback from MPEX. Thanks very much for taking the time, guys. Sorry it's taken us so long to actually find you. Uh, from the UK, we've had a couple of new reviews come in from Chunks1965 and Blackboard Monitoring Volumes. Thanks very much, guys, for taking the time to uh, give us some feedback on the show. Well, that's it for another episode. Okay, if you'd like to contact the show, it's info at laveradio.com. Or if you'd like to catch us on Twitter, it's at laveradio. You can search for us on Facebook at laveradio. And if you'd like to call us on Skype and listen to our cheesy answering machine message, you can. It's lave.radio. For elite-inspired music, check out the links page on laveradio.com. And if you'd like to take part in Retro Lave Contact us at lave.radio on Skype. We muster at 8.30pm on Monday nights. Okay, well that's it for another episode. Thank you very much to John, Alan and Chris. Playing us out this week is Kaimo and his track, Huge Universe. You can find more of Kaimo on SoundCloud if you search for Kaima, K-Y-M-A, UK. Or you can find him on Facebook at Kaima Music.
Hello and welcome to this episode 15 of Lave Radio, the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host for the show, Fozza Forrester, and joining me in the orange beacon of broadcasting are Fresh from Rescuing... Oh, Echo. Maybe I was getting that Sorry, echo. that was me. No, no, it's because I turned, I unmuted my mic because I wasn't sure if you were going to, who are you going to come to first? We weren't sure. I, I did exactly the same. I was hovering over mine thinking, who's he going to first? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's try maybe try that again. Yeah. And those well, are really the options. Well, knowing the uh, Escape Velocity fan base as well as I do, I think they're all going to tell you that you need to put your firstborn child on the back burner and just make sure that you continue nice regular updates of the Escape Velocity series. And that's fair. Interesting stuff, Chris. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay. Um... (laughs) And on a related historical note, as I say now, because you can then cut this bit, uh, that there was no law in the in England against incest until the invention of the bicycle. Then they introduced what? one. What? 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 <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I'm, <clears throat> what? <laughs> what I'm saying is, when the bicycle was introduced, people had the ability to travel from one village to another. Therefore the government said, okay, it's time to put this incest thing to bed, as it were. <laughs> Let's have a law that says you can't do it. Whereas before that, they, they Chris, could, it was a law they couldn't defend because no one ever left their home. Chris, I don't know what? if you remember, but when we were in the first year of university, <laughs> Joy Sisley once gave us a lecture where she mentioned that um, Guildford was the top spot for bestiality in the country. <laughs> I don't know if you recall that, but that, I, I just had the same feeling, um, you know, after your... Uh, <laughs> Your revelation right there. Um, I read that recently. I thought it was really interesting. Oh, was really okay, interesting. so hold on. The, the Jarvis, bicycle. Jarvis, Jarvis, Jarvis. Yeah, yeah. Shut up. Yeah, and Chris Alan, to keep your bestiality <laughs> thoughts to yourself. Okay, Chris let's just gone. continue. I, I can save you here because I've got something that we can add to, to the discussion. Oh, oh, please, please, please do. <laughs> doesn't involve doesn't involve anything to do with the, that topic. I keep on okay. calling this guy Barry Scott. <laughs> Barry Scott! <laughs> Bang, and the dirt is gone. <laughs> so the tier one in the tier one npcs are like the emperor or like uh, the ceo of the corporation okay um so tier twos tend to be kind of you know like when you're dealing with the military so like if you have dealings with a general they'll be like tier two they're not at the top of the organization but they're pretty major npcs and then i think tier np3 sorry tier three npcs are like shop owners you know shipyard traders bloody hell goes goes down quickly doesn't it <laughs> it's something it's something like ge- one minute you're a general <laughs> next minute you're a shop owner <laughs> that's life that is life <laughs> having just done the bloody retro lave and stuff i know exactly uh <laughs> Um, oh, is that why it took so long to come out? What, because I was there? <laughs> I was helping Grant do it. That was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lap it up, Do you, you want to you know, put another bullet in your sniper rifle, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't joke. I'm going to start a new Conclave episode, which will probably take at least another eight weeks before it comes out from the editing room. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh. 
Right. What what is it that makes it seem interesting? Is it again this this idea of different strategies? This this is where I'm have problems. I'm not sure. That's that's my honest answer. I don't really know. There's there's a lot of things about me I don't really know. This, this is the thing. With a lot of things, I don't know the whole picture of why I like them. I just find them enjoyable. For for whatever reason. All of these contacts should be there to provide you with game and having a higher relationship with each one should provide you with greater 